Thanks so much for joining for another episode of Run the List, a medical education podcast designed by Dr. Naveen Kumar, an attending gastroenterologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Emily Gutowski, a Harvard medical student planning on going into internal medicine, and Dr. Walker Red, myself, an internal medicine resident here at Brigham and Women's Hospital. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. All right. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of Run the List. All right, so quick recap. In part one of our COVID-19 podcast series, we focused on the presentation and management of COVID-19 patients on the medicine floor. Today, we are going to turn our attention to those patients who develop severe COVID-19 illness that necessitates care in the intensive care unit, or ICU. So, you may recall that I called on my wife to do this episode, and although I wasn't able to pull this off, I did get the next best thing. That's right, I got the one and only Dr. Ari Moskowitz from the Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston, Massachusetts. Ari, quick thoughts on being my wife's replacement on this podcast, please. Thanks, Naveen. Um, those are some uh, big shoes to fill. Um, I wish you would join us, but i um, happy to be talking to you tonight. Thank you. All right, so let me give you more information on Ari. He is the Associate ICU Director in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine, and is a great friend, researcher, clinician, father, husband, son. I mean, he really does it all. So we are just so excited to have him on our podcast today. Ari, did I miss anything in that description there? Uh, no, I think the, the best part was the friend part. So excited to be here. Thank you. All right, friends, let's go ahead and run the list. All right, Ari, what are the most common reasons for why a patient with COVID-19 ends up needing ICU level of care rather than management on the medical floor? Yeah, I think that's um, an important question and one that, that comes up a lot, uh, many times a day, um, as it turns out. Um, by far the most uh, common reason for a patient needing uh, to be in the, in the ICU or the intensive care unit is what we would call acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. I want to be clear, though, that acute hypoxemic respiratory failure is not just a single number. It's not an O2 sat less than 90%. It's not a requirement of a certain amount of oxygen. Um, acute hypoxemic respiratory failure really encompasses uh, a constellation of issues that include um, hypoxemia, but that also include things like high work of breathing, degree of dyspnea. So patients that, that need the ICU in the COVID era um, commonly do so because of acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, but that may not just be based on the oxygen saturation alone. Got it. So, you know, here at the Run the List podcast, we love to emphasize frameworks to organize our thinking. And I know that there's more than just the hypoxemic respiratory failure that we're seeing with these patients with severe COVID-19 illness. Is there an approach from your experience that you found helpful in thinking about how to manage the varying manifestations of COVID-19 in the ICU? I think that it's tempting to think about these manifestations of COVID-19 as unique or, or new entities, things that we haven't faced before. But really, we've been dealing with things like viral pneumonia, viral ARDS, viral hepatitis, viral cardiomyopathy for decades. And we have tried and true frameworks for thinking about them. We have tried and true research into their mechanisms and excellent therapeutics that we've been using for, for a long period of time when they know that works. So if you ask what my framework is for dealing with these conditions in the ICU as a result of COVID, what I would say is that we should use the same exact things that we've been doing for every other viral severe illness um, that we've encountered. 
And so what does that look like, Ari? Like, are there, are there certain organ systems that you think about systematically as you are admitting one of these patients to your unit? Yeah, I, I th- I, in the ICU, we like to think of ourselves as generalists and think about every organ system. And truly, COVID, like many critical illnesses, can affect pretty much every organ system. By far, the most commonly severely affected organ system are the lungs. As I mentioned before, the reason for ICU admission for most COVID patients is respiratory failure. But we're also seeing a, a host of other conditions. We're commonly seeing coagulopathy. In one case series that we recently put together, the rate of coagulopathy was in the, in the high 20 percentile range. And that's even in a situation in which we're not getting very many CAT scans looking for pulmonary embolism or ultrasounds looking for DVTs because we don't want to expose other workers to COVID and the transfer of these patients. But even without that, we're seeing a, a huge amount of clotting in these patients. So coagulopathy is a real concern. We're seeing a fair bit of hepatitis. The hepatitis that at least I've personally seen has not particularly been life-threatening, but you do see LFT abnormalities primarily in hepatocellular patterns. Cardiomyopathy, we have seen a bit. I would say that while impressive and scary when it happens, which I think drove a lot of the early reports of uh, cardiomyopathy as being a prominent feature of this illness, I would say that it's, it's not common, but it does happen, maybe in about 5% of our patients. So we really do see the gamut of organ dysfunction, of organ injury um, in covid but again, I would, I would say that the way we approach it is the same way we approach any viral, virally mediated critical illness. That's super helpful. So, so just to summarize there, you obviously are thinking about the lungs first and foremost, but you also have to think about the vascular system and your C manifestations, both cardiac as well as hepatic, and then I'm sure renal all these other organ systems that end up being affected in severe illness. Yeah, and, and renal is one that, that I want to focus on just for a second because we are seeing a lot of renal injury to the point that our renal console teams are very stretched, our dialysis machines are very stretched, so we are seeing a fair bit of renal injury. I think that the uh, mechanism for that is not entirely known. Is it directly virally mediated? Is it just because of the severity of the illness? Um, but we are seeing a fair bit of renal injury as well. Very interesting. So if we just go back to the respiratory failure, because again, that seems like for most patients, that is what's bringing them into the ICU. Do you have to think about the COVID-19 patients differently in terms of the respiratory failure compared to, you know, the pre-COVID-19 era when you're having other patients presenting the ICU for respiratory failure of other etiologies? That's a good question. And it's one that's being sort of hotly debated right now. And I think there's there's sort of there's sort of two answers to that question. The first one is that in any sort of critical condition, there's a there's a tendency to to anchor on certain things um, and to anchor on what's most prevalent. And what what I would say is that that it's really important in the COVID era to not anchor solely on the fact that this is probably COVID pneumonia, COVID ARDS. Um, I had one case recently that was thought to be COVID pneumonia ARDS. It turned out to be Legionella, for instance. So I, I think the first thing is that that just because COVID is so prevalent and we're seeing so much of it does not mean that all those other forms of respiratory failure just go away. So I encourage people to to really not anchor and to really think through their differential diagnoses um, when approaching the patient with COVID ARDS. The second thing that I, w- that I would say is, that, as I mentioned before, there's a tendency to think of COVID as this novel new thing that we've never seen before, but we really have seen it before. In, a, in that case series that um, we recently published, what we found was that the range of, of compliance, of respiratory system compliance of, of lung injury in patients with COVID ARDS is quite similar to that of ARDS and other major trials and major cohorts that have been done. So while people have espoused this concept of different types of um, COVID ARDS, I really would encourage people to think of it as, as typical ARDS and to treat it the same way, to use what we know works, which we know is low tidal volume ventilation, conservative fluid balance, and really not sort of reach towards novel therapeutic strategies. 
Ari, that's super helpful. I just love that idea of being broad in the differential diagnosis with these patients and avoiding the the anchoring bias that you that you mentioned right there. That's really, really helpful. If we can kind of circle back to the respiratory failure issue, I'm just curious, like in your practice, when do you think about a patient who is having increasing work of breathing, hypoxemia, when do you feel confident that it's time to actually escalate things and intubate that patient for mechanical ventilation? How do you think about that process? Yeah, if I if I had the answer to that question perfectly, I think I could publish a lot of articles on that. But I, I don't think there's a clear answer there. There's a balance that you have to they have to strike between not intubating the patient too early when there's a risk of lung damage from the ventilator of all the sedation that you're going to be using the procedure of intubation itself versus letting the patient breathe on their own, um, potentially with things like high flow nasal cannula or non rebreather but risking that the patient is going to be injuring themselves by taking very, very large tidal volumes by struggling to breathe. So it's really a matter of, of striking that balance. When do you think that patient is really getting to the phase of they're starting to injure themselves or entering sort of a, a cycle of lung injury based on how they're working to breathe? Um, and this is the point to intubate them. For me, a lot of it is, is, again, not really driven by the oxygen saturation. I think we're often very focused on the oxygen saturation, but I think that that's important, but maybe a more minor part of this. I think for me, what really is important is how that patient looks, how they're breathing. Are they using their accessory muscles? Are they struggling to complete a sentence? Are they really diaphoretic? These are the things that are really important for me when deciding when it's time to intubate a patient. That's fascinating. So I, I really appreciate that point about how it's more than just looking at the the O2 saturation. You're really kind of incorporating their entire presentation, looking at the physical exam, seeing signs of impending respiratory failure underscores how important the physical exam is in everything we do for our patients. So thank you for that, Ari. Yeah, of course. And the physical exam is absolutely. And then also just the overall patient trajectory. I mean, we've had patients who are on, you know, 15 liters of oxygen, but look okay. They're not breathing hard. Um, and you watch them for a couple of hours. And, and if anything, they're getting better, not worse. Those are the patients that are probably okay to stay on the floor and probably be managed with just supplemental oxygen. A patient that has, you know, even if they're not on 15 liters, but they've gone from nothing to four liters to six liters and they're working, that's the patient, even though they're on less oxygen than the patient of 15 liters, that's the patient you might intubate earlier just because it's clear that the trajectory is not good. Got it. So follow these patients closely, see what trend is occurring over the short period of time and, and bring that in as another data point in terms of thinking um, what the best next step is for their respiratory status. Exactly. Very, very helpful. All right. Um, you know, I've heard a lot about proning. And I remember, I recall in medical school learning about this, but I'd love for you to refresh both my memory as well as for all our listeners. Why does proning actually help in these cases of hypoxemic respiratory failure? Yeah, so I think there's a physiologic explanation to that. Um, and then there's the data that we have from uh, randomized studies. So you're right, we are proning a fair number of these people, just like we do in standard ARDS when they reach a certain severity. And uh, you may have heard people talk about awake proning in the COVID era. We were we were actually thinking about doing that, and there have been studies about that in, in the pre-COVID era as well. So none of this is really new or specific to COVID. This is just something that we have in our armamentarium against um, hypoxemic respiratory failure and ARDS. So why does proning work? There's a number of theories out there, and it's probably some combination of all of the above. The perhaps simplest to understand theory has to do with which areas of the lung are compressed and which areas of the lung are receiving adequate ventilation. What this all gets back to is, is that VQ mismatch that, that you hear so much about. So you become hypoxemic when you have a lot of perfusion to an area that's not well ventilated. And where that happens are areas where the alveoli are compressed. 
So when you're in your supine position, you're lying flat on a bed. In the anterior portion, you have your mediastinum, you have your heart, and that's sitting on, on your lungs. And it's compressing alveoli and resulting in an alveolar collapse. So you have decent perfusion, and that's creating some BQ mismatch. In addition, in the, the dorsal part of your lungs, the diaphragm really creates a, a dome and it really compresses, especially when it's flaccid, the uh, back of the lungs. And that can also create BQ mismatch from alveolar collapse and setting of adequate blood flow. So when you flip over, both of those things get better. You take the mediastinum off of the, the anterior chest and you put it dorsally. And then you, your diaphragm actually gets displaced caudally towards your head. And both of those things open up those alveolar units and better facilitate BQ matching. So that's sort of one important physiologic concept. Another one is that when you're ventilating somebody in the supine position, a lot of the volume, a lot of the, the pressure um, actually goes to the ventral units, the anterior units, and less goes to the, the dorsal units. And that, what that can do is it can over distend some of the, the anterior units and result in collapse in the posterior units. And that can further lung injury. Finally, another, another sort of major component to this is that it helps with sort of distribution of blood flow. That when you're lying supine, a lot of the blood flow is posterior to those collapsed units. When you flip over, the actual distribution of blood flow doesn't change much, but those closed units that were previously supine or dorsal are now ventral and are open and are getting a lot of that perfusion. And then one other sort of thing that that's interesting is that just like you would think about like a, a cystic fibrosis patient and trying to clear their secretions by positional drainage, by moving them all around, flipping somebody over helps drain some secretions as well, just by being in a different position and, and perhaps even more easily allowing chest physiotherapy. So there's just a few uh, of the potential reasons why proning might be helpful. Yeah, no, that was perfect. I think that's that was so well said. I love how you kind of just showed how what you're really trying to do is improve the ventilation perfusion match by proning someone, you actually improve both ventilation as well as perfusion. Does that sound is that a fair statement? That's exactly right. It's all about the BQ matching. Nice. Awesome. And then, you know, we know from the large trial of proning was the Proceva trial, which was done in France. It took patients with moderate to severe RDS um, and it randomized them to proning or not at a P to F ratio once their PAO2 to FAO2 ratio fell below 150. And what it found was that there actually was a mortality benefit to proning. And that, that's you know, one of the few studies that's out there showing a mortality benefit from an ARDS. It's also, you know, while manpower intensive can be a very safe and effective therapy um, that doesn't involve any kind of medications or things like that. So I, I think it's gained a lot of popularity in the management of ARDS generally. Yeah, what a great kind of tool in your armamentarium. And I know it's not easy in the intensive unit to, to do this, but the idea of just changing a body position to improve oxygenation, ventilation, perfusion, very, very impressive. Ari, kind of on that same topic of therapies we can do for these patients, you know, there's been so much in the media about the various antiviral treatments that are being tested, very preliminary data that's being um, shown. How do you think about the antiviral treatments and, and using them in your patients? Yeah, um, it comes up a lot. You know, I think early on in this epidemic, there was this sort of disregard for evidence-based medicine that we've come to rely on. And for a good reason, because these patients were young, um, they were very, very sick. They weren't getting better. We didn't understand what was happening. And because of that, people relied on very poor, even no evidence at all, to start these therapies that may or may not help patients with COVID ARDS. Overall, the way that I think about this um, is that we really should be only using these therapies in the context of a trial. We really want to know if these things are working or not and whether or not they're causing harm. And to use them in other situations is probably not, not adhering to what we know is, is the best principles for care of a patient, which is evidence-based medicine doing what works and avoiding harm. 
Ari, it's been so helpful. I think, you know, the way you kind of start us out thinking about when do you feel like a patient with COVID-19 needs intensive care, unit level of care, then walking us through the different organ systems that can be affected, and then kind of honing in on the respiratory failure and how we should be approaching the respiratory failure similar to how we do for all patients who are admitted to the intensive care unit, but also thinking about proning the patients for the reasons that you really nicely elucidated. Kind of thinking back to everything we talked about, are there, are there any key takeaways you'd have for our listeners about thinking about managing COVID-19 in the ICU? The key things are, one, don't forget the basics. Be a good critical care doctor. Focus on those and the rest will follow. You know, low tidal volume ventilation, conservative fluid balance. The second thing is be patient. Um, we're finding that a lot of these patients do require a fair bit of time on the ventilator, but they do improve. And we're often seeing two to three week intubation courses that, that do end well with patients being discharged um, in good condition. So be patient. And the last thing is that is so important generally in critical care, but that's become even more difficult and more important in the age of COVID um, is how we communicate with families. Because as you know, uh, most hospitals are severely limiting or, or not allowing visitors at all. And making sure that we're taking time every single day to find a way to communicate with families, to invite them on rounds via iPad, to bring them to the bedside on the iPad, just to talk to them and explain exactly what's going on is so important. So I think if I had to pick the takeaways, those, those would be the main ones. Ari, that, that is perfect. Thank you so much. I know you've been incredibly busy with all that you're doing for your um, patients, your division, your your ICUs at Beth Israel Deaconess. So we really appreciate you taking the time and I hope we can see each other soon. I hope so as well. Great talking to you. Awesome. Thanks, Ari. Take care. Mm-hmm.